Now, the really interesting thing is that I think we've got a disconnect here between how government operates and then how the citizen sort of sees you know, government and um, citizens don't care about the individual departments or which task force or which team or which unit is responsible for whatever service. So for them, explaining to them, well, it didn't it didn't actually work out because those actually sit across two different ministerial departments is not is not exactly going to convince many people. Today's guests are Gemma Castles, the lead strategist at the DDI in Edinburgh and Johnny Hugill from Public. And in today's show, we're exploring how partnerships and collaborations can improve the services we're delivered via technology. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast, published by the Harvey Nash Group and hosted by myself, David Savage. Joining me for today's show, we've got Amber. How are you, Amber? I'm okay. I'm okay. But this is really bad. Guess what happened to me at the weekend, Dave? Well, not I mean, this could be any, num- any number of different things. Uh, does it it's, involve alcohol? No, 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 it doesn't. No, it's really bad. And I'm actually like emotionally damaged from it. So I ran over right, a bunny okay. rabbit. Oh, no. I know. I basically, How did I that happen? A, well, I was driving down like a country road. It was quite dark. And this bunny just like bolted out of nowhere. And obviously I tried to like slam on my brakes and stop. And it, yeah, and I've not been the same since. Just, I don't think you're, you're meant. I don't think you're meant to slam on your brakes. Are you? No, obviously, you, you knew that, that there was nothing they, behind you. Yeah, they do always say that you're supposed to save. Like, so say obviously it means that a car could have gone into me. They're like you're supposed to save a human life rather than the animal life. But like, luckily there was no cars behind me, so I did slam on my brakes. But obviously, it still didn't actually save the bunny. So, Ooh. yeah, yeah. I, I went for a run yesterday, and there was a there was a partridge or a pheasant, not a partridge. It was a pheasant. <laughs> <laughs> there was a pheasant dead on the road, and it's like, oh. Oh, those are supposed really to be the, like the stupidest birds, though, aren't they? Yeah, they're not bright. Yeah, how are you anyway, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> Good. I had a, I had an interesting weekend. I went on a stag do, which was more like a boot camp. It started oh, nice. with a five k run, then a football tournament, and then we jumped into seven degree or six point nine degree water. Oh my god! Which is really painful. Yeah, I can imagine. That sounds like a great stag do, though, because I just I would way prefer something like activity based rather than just like going mad drinking. Well, I can tell you, jumping into water that cold, it really hurts, and it took me about thirty seconds to get my breathing like under control. I was like in the water, going, "Shit!" Like, calm down. This is really kind of this is probably not very safe. Oh, it was okay. Did you just find like a random pond or something? Or was this like, did you organise this and it was somewhere no. <laughs> no, it was it was Brockwell Lido. Oh, right. Okay. I just thought you meant like you had like jumped in a duck pond or something. I was like, I don't think that's very, very safe, Dave. I don't think you're supposed to do that. No, no, we didn't find. No. Um, there is something else that we should say at the beginning of this podcast. Vamos and Viva España. Vamos. Viva España. I have no idea. Absolutely, isn't it like up the the Spanish or something? Viva España, goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vamos is let's go, and Viva España is like long live Spain type thing. Ah, Uh, That's because very randomly, we want to give a shout out to our Spanish listeners because we don't really know why, but last week, out of nowhere, Spain became the most listened to location for this podcast. No way! Oh, okay. Yeah, vamos. Yeah, and it wasn't that we suddenly had a. A drop off in listeners anywhere else. It was just a sudden surge of listeners in Spain. So if you're listening in Spain, hello. 
<laughs> we, don't, we don't know why you're listening because neither of us can speak Spanish uh, and neither can Akish. Um, but thank you for joining us. That's very kind. Yeah, that's very odd. But um, I mean, yeah, also, as you said, very kind. So we'll take it. Right. Uh, anyway, we're going to get into today's first interview, which is with Johnny Hugo from Public. Uh, and then another interview with Gemma Cassells from the DDI in Scotland. So I'm chatting to Johnny Hugo from Public. Uh, Johnny, you've been on the show before. I had a look. It was something like episode 150, and we're now on episode 460-odd. So it was quite a long time ago. Wow, early guest. <laughs> yeah, reasonably, yeah, actually reasonably early. I, I don't actually want to try and work out how long ago that was, but um, <laughs> do you just want to tell everyone who you are and what you do at Public? Yeah, and we did that in person, of course, so... Uh... I think yes. that gives you some sense of how long ago that was. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Johnny Hugo um, from a company called Public. Um, Public was set up a few years ago um, to help uh, governments around the world to, to use technology to, to transform their public services, uh, deliver better kind of citizen-facing services for citizens, but, but really also to kind of help governments better understand um, what this, this technology transformation we're going through uh, will look like for them and 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 the kind of services they provide for for citizens um and i've been there uh for about four and a bit years and uh have uh helped lots and lots of governments from the uk to the netherlands to serbia uh, belgium and now actually uh more globally um to think about technology in a different way and to to, to design and build new uh, government digital services and so it stands to reason that the last two years have been very interesting because we've gone from a situation where I suppose digital services were maybe a nice to have, maybe they shouldn't have been a nice to have, but they were a nice to have. And there were some countries that were kind of at the forefront, you know, you think of the likes of New Zealand, who'd kind of really implemented digital services very, very well. And other countries that maybe hadn't done it as as well to then being in a situation where everyone had to suddenly make sure that their services were online and accessible to not just digital natives, not just millennials, but but everyone across the spectrum. Yeah, I think it, it's kind of cliched at this point to say that uh, the pandemic, you know, massively transformed the way their industry was working. But I think really for us, um, I, I think we had no idea what to expect when, when March 2020 came around in terms of how governments were going to react and in terms of what the sector was going to look like. But I, I think for two reasons, it's been such an important part of the response. I mean, first of all, Governments have sort of become more important in our lives and the decisions they've been making over the past 18 months or longer have have been maybe more important than they previously were. And there's sort of been a role for government uh, increased and slightly changing, uh, which, of course, has had big technology ramifications. So I think that's the first point. And then, of course, because we've all had to do all of this digitally, the response has had to primarily been digital. So I, you bring those two elements together, a kind of new invigorated and different kind of government intervention. And then second, uh, that being digitally led. Uh, yeah, it's been it's just been um, such a kind of exciting, bewildering, but also really challenging uh, you know, past couple of years for, for, for government. And um, I think the thing I would say is, is that uh, I think citizens have kind of realised, or at least there's been an increased public interest in the fact that so much of the kind of efficient operation of government and the, and what we expect from government actually comes down to quite simple but really important technology, like having uh, effective databases, uh, properly linking data when they need to, to to coordinate the right right response, ensuring that government departments aren't siloed and are working together. Um, and uh, I think when things have gone really well over the past few years um, in terms of global government responses, those have been generally driven by 
very good data and, and very good sort of technology basics. Um, and uh, the stories where things unfortunately haven't gone so well, well, largely, I think that's because some of the kind of underlying tech just wasn't in there, or, or at least especially the underlying data um, just wasn't in the right kind of place to, to coordinate a good response. You've done some research that's on, on, on your website um, and colour in the, um, the gaps if I, if I kind of kind of get any of this wrong, but it's public confidence in, in accessing public services online skyrockets during the pandemic. You've got a stat here that 60% of people are more confident using digital public services than before COVID-19. When, we, when we're saying that, this, this is specific to the UK, that number, right? That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So 60% are more confident, I suppose. As we said, it's, it's cliched to say that the pandemic has been transformative. But to me, for, does that suggest that 40% aren't quite there? If anything, I would have almost imagined it would have been more than 60%. Yeah, I, th- I think when we collected, so we, we, we conducted a survey of, of uh, a pretty big uh, representative chunk of the UK population uh, and actually and, and got a sense of their views of, of how government technology was going more broadly. Um, and of course, we got a mixed picture. I don't think we expected to get a enormously positive picture i think when we reflected on 60 percent, we didn't really know what to make of it either i think i i think the first thing we thought about is well generally people are quite hostile and negative when they're thinking about their government you know their interpretation of government responses so in in one sense 60 percent more positive seems quite good also worth keeping in mind that you know a lot of the people we were surveying were above the age of 65 or you know never really used government digital services before so in a way, I think that that all is pretty strong. But you're right, there, there is still a kind of um, uh, sceptical uh, tail end of people who are who are uh, clearly slightly less convinced. And I think that that is worth bearing out because when we looked at similar data in, for instance, South Korea, Denmark, Estonia, yeah. the places that are sort of really seen as the government digital leaders, um, there was just a higher level of trust in government digital services. And I think... Um, it, it might sound a little, a little sort of amorphous and difficult to pin down, but if I was really thinking about the kind of data point I'd want to see improve if I was in charge of, of government digital services, it, it would be trying to foster that same kind of level of trust and confidence and support in government digital services that they have in some of those other um, economies. Now, there might be some reasons why it's been easier to do that there, maybe the size of them or the relative sort of newness of their government um, um, systems, but but still, I think... Uh, even though it's a good stat in some way, uh, there is clearly some some more to be done to convince people. You mentioned earlier about kind of not siloing data or, you know, making sure that systems kind of uh, were th- the systems that would be needed to, to run these services. The report talks about the fact that the lack of UK public sector engagement with services online is due to a variable quality with these services across the public sector. 15% of citizens say they have had to repeat using digital public services because they were unable to resolve their issues after a single interaction. Is that that point that perhaps there was some solid data? I, I moved house during the pandemic and you kind of go from one uh, local council to another and you get a wildly different experience and have a wildly different expectation. I think that the that the services that I get here in Kent are far superior to the ones I was getting in West London, if I'm being perfectly honest. And, and that can't help that trust piece. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, if I were able to, and Sally or not, um, design the most effective system for, for how government would run and sort of draw it on a piece of paper, I think this sort of key, key element is that whichever touch point you enter, there is some connection 
in terms of a sort of continued user journey for, for you as, a, as an end user. And I think if we reflect on the private sector, it's sort of a an intuitive thing that people do really well and maybe don't even have to think about. Of course, it's it's simpler because you haven't got, you know, tens of thousands of, of local governments and, and agencies and authorities kind of having to be looped in. But but still, I think when we use things in our private lives or when we use uh, a digital service in our private lives, those tend to be really joined up you know, you'll remember, you have your everything that you, your entire transaction history, everything you did um, when you last entered the platform, any sort of uh, connections it needs to be will be done automatically for you. And um, and in fact, that sort of join up service also tends to happen across media uh, types. So, you know, Amazon's a great example, which is that it's pretty easy to find and pick up exactly what you've been doing on Amazon. And also you'll probably get a text about it anyway. And the whole thing just feels sort of pretty joined up. And so I think if I had to kind of really pinpoint one of the big areas that that, that we would want to see better improvement, it would be joining up those, those digital services for a unified journey. Now, the really interesting thing is that I think we've got a disconnect here between how government operates and then how the citizen sort of sees, you know, government. And um, citizens don't care about the individual departments or which task force or which team or which unit is responsible for whatever service. So for them, explaining to them, well, it didn't it didn't actually work out because those actually sit across two different ministerial departments is not is not exactly going to convince many people. So, you know, take the example of um, having, uh, you know, registering your child after childbirth. Right. That feels like a great example of where as soon as as soon as, uh, you know, you've had the wonderful news that you've had a child and it's healthy, you then have to go through quite a lot of essentially manual and separate processes to register that baby um, to then uh, apply for child benefits if you need them uh, for for any sort of change in your existing uh, benefits, all of that stuff, uh, anything to do with tax status changes, like all of those things have to be pretty manually done and are not just seamlessly joined up. So the vision that we sort of tried to present in the report, but I think the vision that a lot of governments are working to more broadly is that when you kind of engage with government in a, in in some kind of relevant way, all of the different pieces will happen pretty automatically. And, and like you said, that just can't happen. You know, that just there, I described two or three different departments. We might have the NHS, we might have your local authority, or, and actually worse than that, we might have your, your local NHS trust we might have your GP, your local authority. Then we've got the Department for Work and Pensions for any sort of benefit calculations. And just at the moment, they are not sharing information around those kind of key use cases. Um, and my, my final point is this, is that maybe the right thing to do is to think about what the key use cases are, like having a, you know, having a child or moving a dress or, um, uh, you know, some of the key things we do with government uh, all the time and think about fixing those use cases first. So, yeah, the report talks about the fact that over one third, 33% of citizens still have experienced public services that are nominally digitalized, but which require them to submit a paper form. I think this is really interesting, right? Where where we have to make a phone call or visit in location. As a result, the general public is very supportive of the introduction of a government or a, yeah, a government digital identity solution that can mean less offline steps and faster, more joined up services. People are generally quite wary about the idea of of a of a kind of a digital profile, digital passport. We've seen that reaction to kind of passports covid passports more kind of more kind of details being kept by yeah. government on each of us but where convenience comes into the picture it seems to blow that all away and people just want to be able to get on and access stuff yeah no i completely agree i think i i think i wrote the point about uh nominal digital services just after i'd been i'd had an absolutely infuriating uh attempt to uh, renew my driver's license 
um, uh, which I thought was a kind of quite a simple uh, transaction with the DVLA. Um, and the way that works, crazy, I don't know if you've done this, um, but you have to, uh, you make an online submission, you then pay, but at that point, your driving license isn't confirmed. They then have to send you a letter that you have to sign and then send back to them. So there's two things that struck me about this that were so weird and so alien in the private sector. One, you would never pay for a service until it's complete in the private sector. It's kind of crazy that halfway through I pay and then it might not even finish. And then second, it just sort of, this letter gets sent to you and you send it back and then there's this this black box void. I had no idea if it had ended up in, you know, in space or in the, the post box of the DVLA. So, and and I think it, the whole thing took about 12, 14 weeks end to end. And, and I just reflected on that and thought, wow, this is just a kind of level of lack of transparency and lack of service continuity in the way I described that you just, it's just not acceptable in the private sector, honestly. And, and I think people just would stop using the service if it was like that. So um, that was where I think I kind of got this idea that actually so much so many things that are sort of digitized really aren't in some important way like they might need someone to phone you up to complete it or you might actually all it might do is just trigger some email interaction that you then need to have there isn't it's it's quite rare that a service just beginning to end and also in one sitting can just be completed fully online and i think that again going back to what i think the kind of vision unified journeys would look like it's it's that kind of thing now you mentioned a really important point about data and and this was i think where some of our survey data came came out really interestingly. So first, you said rightly that 60% of people found were, were more confident in in, um, in government digital services than before the pandemic. Well, interestingly, only 40% were more uh, confident in government handling their data. So we found this kind of interesting disconnect, which is, okay, in general, people are quite supportive of digital services. I think maybe for the first time, they might have done a call with their GP and thought, actually, this works quite well. But clearly, we're, we're getting definitely not positive and maybe even negative uh, in terms of government responses for, I'm uh, sorry, in terms of citizen responses for how confident they are in government using their data. Now, of course, as we've just discussed, it might not be obvious to people, but the two are completely interlinked. Like the good digital services won't happen unless we have good joined up data. Now, the challenge is that, um, and, our, and my view is actually that I think this is particularly acute in the UK. We are just very skeptical about government, you know, holding, linking, sharing and storing our data um, without us kind of giving very, very explicit consent. So um, you mentioned that the digital ID is one way of teasing this out. Well, we tried to kind of uh, frame some different ways of, 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 of thinking about how we could kind of better store and link data in the way I described. Um, interestingly, when we asked people, are you comfortable with government sharing and storing your data? In general, people were pretty not, you know, not confident about it and not pleased about it. When we asked them, are you, are you happy with government storing and sharing your data so that it can remember your previous interactions with government and it can remind you of relevant services at the right time, people are a lot happier. So I think I, I, I think my takeaway are two things. One, sadly, and, and I think challengingly for, for people designing digital public services, we have to convince the public of the value of sort of sharing and storing and linking data. But we obviously have to do that in a responsible way. And then second, I think it so depends on the way we frame it, because when we asked people, they were a lot happier when we explained why we were doing it versus we're doing it. Is there that kind of lack of education piece as well around, you know, that that general kind of British wariness of big government? And if you're going to deliver these services, there is going to have to be a database with a lot of data on it and how that's managed and how that's disseminated and joined together. And, you know, that transparency that you talk about is really important. I, I suppose the question is, how do how do you deliver these services you know you've you've got so many different 
agencies involved at various different levels. You've got lots of private sector touch points, especially where where healthcare is concerned, who are de- who are kind of augmenting and delivering great services as as, as a consequence of their interaction with with PCTs and NHS trusts and so yeah. on. What's the best way forward? Because because it must be really hard if you're sitting in Whitehall in central government and you're just and you're trying to get the general public on board when you're having to deal with so many different actors and and there's no clear implementation plan. Yeah, and and we might break down this sort of difficulty into two elements. One, there's a technical legacy challenge that is really hard, or a technical challenge, part of which is is due to legacy systems. And as you said, um, you know that is particularly challenging when there are which there are almost thirty five thousand public authorities which, you know, need to hand on process data. That's why I think I said the key thing maybe will be to focus on a few specific use cases rather than sort of trying to think about a cross-government wide uh, data sharing system. And then, um, so we have the technical problem and then we have the the cultural problem, which is what, we, what we've touched on here. And and that does feel like it's particularly acute in the UK. It might, I, I can imagine some other countries where where people would also be uh, slightly sceptical of, of, of those kinds of of use cases. Um, interestingly, when the when the report was launched and and uh, and received by uh, some uh, sort of political figures, the response to that was quite pleased. Well, yeah, British people have a good tradition of of being skeptical and and inquisitive about how government is using their information, which I understand is one perspective. I think um, I think it goes back to the point, and this is why I started with this of trust, which is that to me, if the the if you are really going to convince people that it's valuable for you to to store their information you have to do it in a way that just engenders trust now one way of engendering trust is just having very high quality uh services a sort of reliable commitment to, to high standards and, and korea uh estonia and denmark which i mentioned all, all do have that mm-hmm. i think the other thing we found that was really interesting is is we found that there's actually a correlation between the level of trust you have in a government and the um, the sort of quality of the user interaction and service design. And again, that that sounds quite surprising. So it basically boils down to if your services look great and feel great and have great UI and UX, people have higher levels of trust in them, which is quite surprising. But then actually, if you think about it, if you're using a really crappy website, you're going to look at it and think, actually, I'm not sure I feel so confident about that. You know, these these guys holding my data. I suppose it's the fact that people were far happier initially in the early days of of Apple holding credit card and whatever information over Android. I think it's exactly the same phenomenon. Um, and I think yeah. it's one of the reasons why, again, private sector has just invested so, so much in mm-hmm. high, in, in great UI UX, which is not, I don't think it partly is just to give people a good experience, but I think there's a bigger and maybe softer thing about making people trust the product more. Look, thank you for your time. It's been it's been great to catch up and great to go over that um, that information. If anyone is interested in finding out more about public, how would they do it? Yeah, come and, come and look at our website, um, public.io. Um, we, uh, we've run lots and lots of projects with, with European governments where we've sort of moved all the way from the beginning of thinking about some of these more, you know, tricky things that from a strategy policy and service design perspective, and, and we go all the way through and, and build new great digital services. So if anyone wants to hear more about that or chat to us about how we can help, um, www.public.io. Brilliant. Thanks for your time, Johnny. Thanks very much, Dave. There's a lot in this that I find really interesting. And obviously the reports that we've both had a chance to have a look at as well that Public um, released. Um, it, it kind of alludes to the fact that there is progress being made. I think the report talks about, you know, public confidence skyrocketing. But actually, you know, when you when you talk to, to Johnny and you have a look at the data, I wouldn't say it's skyrocketing. 60% um, 
uh, I think is the headline figure that we talk about in, in the interview, that 60% of citizens are more confident accessing public services online than they were before the pandemic. But Johnny talks about the fact that a lot of these services won't happen with your data and we are inherently very wary of giving our data to the government. I mean, Amber, how do you personally feel about the government having data? Um, do you know what? I'm very 50-50 on this because I find that if you willingly give the data, I just find that if, if you weren't, sorry, let me start that again. If you weren't willing to give your data, like surely they would get it from somewhere anyway. Maybe that's me being really sort of like paranoid, but... I, I just find that they're going to get it from somewhere. So you may as well just give it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we have a digital footprint, don't we? That we kind of, we shop on Amazon. We have iPhones or Android phones. And through that, we, we put most data that anybody, you know, banking, et cetera, um, that any kind of the data that people would want is out there. Yeah. And I, I find that, with a lot of these things, I mean, like you said, there is progress here from obviously by these numbers, people are sort of becoming more trusting and more willing to to give away their data and get involved in these types of things. But when it states sort of how we compare to other countries, really, it's not a great deal of progress, is it, to be honest? I think it mentions like, um, like Denmark and Estonia and I think South Korea was mentioned as well. And in comparison to those countries and like those places, like we're just, we're not even on sort of the same kind of scale. So yeah, there is Although, progress, but it's not as much as maybe we've sort of, we, we think it, when we obviously look elsewhere. Yes. That said, um, and Johnny makes this point, you know, Estonia, it's a much smaller country. Mm. Um and there is this kind of thing about, you know, you've got to think about the mentality of countries as well. Like <clears throat> some of the former Soviet states have a very different mentality around doing things that they're told. And the British are uh, somewhat uh, unreceptive to the <laughs> ideas of big government in the same way that the Americans don't like big government. And there's an element of these services need something akin to big government to actually work. And I, and I think that the, the key point in all of this that Johnny kind of talks about is that we have to explain and that we don't want government to have our data. If we say, you know, if you say to someone, do you want the government to have your data? They generally go, no. But if you say, do you want the government to offer a really good service, which is going to mean that they need your data? They go, okay, yes. So it's just kind of framing it so that people understand what they're getting. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And I think as well, like with a lot of things, like if you take, for example, like the, you know, the NHS, like COVID passes, um, obviously you can sort of like send off and get like a printed copy and stuff, which I mean, it's not sort of incredibly difficult to do, but then in, you can also sort of jump on and just go through a couple of questions on the app and and then it's on your phone and it's there and it's easily accessible and you've just got it from the offset rather than waiting for it to kind of come through the post. Like my dad is not, a technical person whatsoever but he's managed to do that and you know if, if I go back um I'd say kind of a few years or so or even just before the pandemic he wouldn't even have ever thought of doing that or have done it for himself or have I suppose just wanted to have done that I think we've become so sort of like reliant on technology and it's just become so like it's basically sort of saved us throughout this pandemic that naturally mm -hmm. people are more willing to sort to do these things or even just give these things a try and then more often than not when they do it they actually realize it's so much 
easier for them that they wouldn't go back to doing it the old way that they did things beforehand. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you know, it's that ease of convenience. Johnny mentions uh, Amazon, you know, it's joined up, it's convenient, therefore we use it. And it's probably that thing with your parents, with us, that if it's convenient and it works, we use it. Mm, exactly. Yeah, exactly that. I do think there is that thing, though, where Johnny talks about, um, he talks about government perception versus government reality. And he, he doesn't mention what I'm going to mention next, but I think this plays a part. You look at the government and you think of the government and it's not political, but you do think of the political parties involved. And then you get figures on telly like Nadine Dorries, who's like Minister for Digital and other bits and pieces. And she was on the telly a few days ago telling everyone that the internet was 10 years old. It's like, it was 10 years old. The internet only existed from 2012. Like, how the hell does she think we were sending emails back in 2005? <laughs> and it's like, oh, do I want to trust these people with my data? <laughs> like, I don't think that helps. So I think people need to to really kind of go, oh, hang on a minute. Who am I actually giving my data to? It's not, it's not, and separate government from what government really is, which is this collection of agencies that are really trying to do stuff to, to improve your life and to make services more freely available. Yeah, that's such a good point, actually. And I always, before you've just said that, I probably associate it with like, yeah, you say the government and you essentially think of like, I don't know, Boris Johnson and do you know what I mean people in power and 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 then it becomes like you said a quite a political thing and people think well I don't support him so therefore I don't want to give my data and and it, it becomes um yeah way more sort of bogged down and kind of complex than what it has to be so I think if you actually sort of break away from that and then associate it with what it's supposed to be associated and what it actually kind of means and who it's going to then you probably would be you know a lot happier to sort of to be involved or you know to go online give your data whatever yeah. um yeah, that's really strange, actually, because before you've said that, I really hadn't thought about what our sort of perception of government is, because that plays a big part in this. And I yeah, think especially when they think that it's 10 years, the internet's 10 years old, like Christ. <laughs> like, I don't want to let any, I don't, I don't, not, not my data, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust that person with anything. Um, <laughs> but that aside, uh, the second interview that we'll turn attention to in a second, Gemma also talks about the fact that, that, um, actually technology can really help local governments and local authorities create a sense of place and I thought this was really interesting she talks about the fact that her community becomes smaller it was you know the two miles that she could walk to during the pandemic and that we're not talking about uh, sadly as you'll hear um, robots taking the bins out um, but we are talking about using data to just improve the the experience that we have like if we pop to the post office and 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 okay well what else might we be able to offer that person so that their their lives are a little bit easier and I really like the idea that actually this technology can be used to create and engender a sense of community and a sense of place mm. I think that's even mentioned in this report as well about like just improving kind of like public services and just it just been for, for good. And as you said, I think because of the pandemic, we relied so much on like our local community and our local surroundings. And I think we've had this conversation before actually, but you've, mm. because you've, you know, you was only able to go for a walk or it was, you were sort of taken back to such sort of simple ways of living. Um, you did start to take more of an interest in like what was happening in your surroundings and how you can improve that, how you can make it a better experience. You know, if you were just going for a walk or taking your kids to the park and you know, it was all, it was a mess or it was all broken or whatever, you probably instinctively would be like, right, I'm going to do something about that because I want to make it a better place if that's currently all we have. Um, 
so yeah I mean if, again if you can sort of use like you know if you can use the um your sort of data and you can do things and you can make changes from it of course it's going to be yeah it's going to be beneficial and you can if you can see the results in something that you're doing naturally again we think we've had this conversation before but you can you'll be more inclined to do it and I think with a lot of this if you sort of fill out surveys or you go online and you you know do different things um and you don't see any result then you'll probably just go back to the way that you was doing it before because you'll think right if I fill out a form and I send it off it's going to get somewhere and someone's going to action it whereas if it just kind of falls into you know sort of a digital universe somewhere and it's completely ignored then I don't want to be involved with it basically just because we've mentioned it before doesn't make it any less relevant very true Right. Uh, well, let's see how this episode goes down with our Spanish um, listeners. We're going to hand <laughs> over to Gemma before that. Uh, so do stay tuned for that interview. But um, Amber, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Dave. So I'm joined by Gemma Castles. I should double check, really. That is Castles because it's double S, double L, right? That's correct, yeah. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Thanks, not too bad. And you're joining us from Edinburgh, uh, where you work um, in higher education. Do you want to tell everyone exactly what your role is and and who you work for and what you do? Absolutely. Yep. Pleasure to be joining you this morning. Um, So my name is Gemma Castles. I am currently the lead strategist for the Data Driven Innovation Programme, which is hosted at the University of Edinburgh on behalf of the Edinburgh and South East Scotland City Region Deal which is a combination of funding from Scottish and UK government and six regional local authorities. So Edinburgh, East, West and Midlothian, Fife and the Scottish borders have all come together for a city region growth deal. And the DDI programme is a £650 million programme that is being run as part of that, hosted, uh, hosted by the University of Edinburgh on behalf of that partnership. It's quite... Uh... A clunky description of me then to say higher education because that's really quite misleading. But hosted at the University of Edinburgh. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, so what's what's the actual aims of the DDI programme? So the DDI programme has five objectives that form the handy acronym TRADE. So mm-hmm. we are looking to improve the use of data-driven innovation across 10 key sectors in the city region. And so they form the acronym TRADE, Talent, Research, Adoption, Data and Entrepreneurship. So looking to train the next generation of data scientists to live and work in the city region, looking to expand the already brilliant research capacity at the region's universities, um, looking at helping a thousand organizations adopt data-driven innovation into their business practices and operations, making more data sets available for use by external organizations and by researchers, as well as supporting the growth of new startups and scale-up companies in the city region. So I think this is this is interesting because kind of the other half of this podcast, we were talking to public and uh, in that interview, um, Johnny talks about the fact that it's all around education with regards to building public trust in the use of data. And that if you tell, if you ask people whether or not they're happy for government to have their data, they generally say no. But if you say, oh, well, would you be happy for the government to have your data because then they can offer you these services? People say yes. And is there an element here that it needs partnerships to be able to achieve that? Because government itself is perhaps not placed to deliver these services accurately, whereas partnerships with 
entrepreneurs and innovators and and tech organizations and that whole kind of ecosystem coming together is just placed to to be able to actually deliver the services that help build trust no absolutely i think that's really the key working for the ddi program has really highlighted that for me my background's in the public sector so i'm going to admit a public sector bias right from the outset um prior to working for the ddi program i worked for edinburgh council i've worked for a number of scottish local authorities as well and the the way that the ddi program is operating has given space for local government for national government to come together with commercial partners with communities with other organizations they wouldn't normally interact with in a trusted but politically neutral space so that they have this opportunity to come together in new ways in ways that say commercial organizations wouldn't necessarily want to share data with competitors for a public good like not to enhance their own bottom line like but it's commercially sensitive data and so having something like the DDI program gives a space for these conversations to happen in ways that we have um, the Edinburgh International Data Facility, which hosts the NHS Data Safe Haven for Scotland. So there's a long history at the University of Edinburgh of having high value, very secure data assets being stored and used by the university. So we know how to do that side to keep everybody safe. And then we've given everybody a place where they can come together to have difficult conversations that are actually really hard to have in your day job. Um, when you're working in public sector organisations, when you're just trying to keep the lights on and services functioning, it can be really hard to step back and have space to innovate and to ask what's next, how can we do it better when you're presented with people who are in crisis and need help immediately. It's really hard to take that second step back and to have that time to think and reflect. And that's where the university can add value because we've got a huge amount of resource of academics who are creative insight into problems solving that's their whole career their whole career is thinking about new ways to do things so having that place to bring everyone together is really valuable it's interesting that you highlight the kind of the commercially sensitive aspect of a, of a private organization and and almost the the authorities and 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 the university being kind of the fail safe or safe haven for bringing some of those organizations together so they feel comfortable at it, about it because if i think about healthcare and i think about the healthcare entrepreneurs that we've interviewed on this podcast over the years we started to talk about a class of doctorpreneurs kind of people who'd come directly from healthcare who had particular gripes with the system that they wanted to try and fix and i suppose therefore they were in the mindset of of knowing that they needed to share some of that data for it to succeed and, and have a benefit. So is, is that a real challenge? Because I, w- I would have thought many people entering this space, even with an entrepreneurial mindset, are trying to fix problems and, and are, are alive to the fact that they do have to work in collaboration with others. No, absolutely. And I think, um, as you mentioned, like everybody who is trying to tackle like any kind of big societal challenge, like if there was a simple solution that one person could implement or design, we'd have done it already. So I think everyone has now come to recognize that we're going to have to work together collaboratively and it's going to be in that coming together. Everybody gets 1% of the solution. There's not somebody with 100% of the solution. So trying to find ways to bring that information together, like health and social care is a prime example. We've got the Usher Institute, which is one of the innovation hubs being set up by the DDI program that is working really hard at bringing together this sort of health and social care data with entrepreneurship, with innovation, with doctors and clinicians and people who work in the field 
very actively to try and look at new ways that they can bring their expertise together, but have products that protect the rights of patients, that protect the rights of vulnerable individuals. Like there are so many conversations that we are having around consent, around unconsented and consented data, and what are the limits that are appropriate to place around the use of those data sets when you're looking at things that may not have been previously considered, like how we can monetize like data sets is something that's actually relatively new. And when we're looking at how we can, um, you might get the doctorpreneurs, I've not heard that word, I quite like it, um, who just want to help make the system better. But that's not to say that their insight may not also spark an insight in a company that produces something that is commercially very valuable, but they look to monetize off the back of data that was opened up for research purposes only. So trying to navigate that space is really challenging and something that um, all sort of public sector organizations need to be aware of when they're looking to innovate with data. So you mentioned the acronym trade. Um, and, and I think you mentioned talent, entrepreneurship. I, you forgive me, the R, the A and the D. I didn't <laughs> quite catch. But in terms of where you're having to focus your time right now, where, where do you find that actually a lot of your time and effort is going to try and make the, the program work and bring everyone together? The main focus for the DDI program at the moment um, is primarily, I think, through talent research and adoption activity, although um, that varies by innovation hub and by sector. So we've got six innovation hubs at the university that we're setting up and then also 10 sectors that we're focusing on as important for the city region overall. Mm -hmm. And my examples primarily come from the public sector, my previous role was as public services sector lead prior to starting my lead strategist role. So that's where the bulk of my expertise comes in. And really for that, there's a lot of focus on adoption. So working with the six local authorities in the city region deal partnership to focus on how that we how we can make change in their organizations. And obviously there's a talent, so teaching component, executive education component to helping create that spark for change. But um, and the university is obviously very, very invested in talent. So its core proposition is teaching people things. So getting those innovation hubs set up with new teaching programs is obviously very important. But we've also had great success through um, one of the only innovation hub that we currently have up and running is the Bay Centre, um, which is in the centre of town. And um, if anybody knows the School of Informatics, it's just based there. And it's focus is it's run two very successful um, entrepreneurship uh, accelerators okay. and so we've got growth coming through through entrepreneurship so we're making progress against all of our targets but I think um, talent research and adoption have formed the bulk of a lot of the early work to sort of yeah. focus on that outward facing bringing the community along kind of aspect to the city region deal. Uh, the last question then is and this might be look I might phrase this in poorly so forgive me this this is me talking to an expert and that'll probably make a hash of it but you you mentioned there about adoption i think this is quite interesting because you kind of look at how um the the partnership model of of um private organizations and public organizations can help deliver better services that the public get behind and understand and you look at healthcare and you can see how some of those organizations you know we, we've had ieso digital health um on the podcast we've had Babylon. I know that there have been kind of 
some concerns around Babylon, but they're, you know, Push Doctor, a lot of these organizations, Forward Health, I think they've re- renamed, um, Thrive, lots, Thriver, lots and lots of different organizations who have come in and offer a service that people go, all right, that really helps. And I think during the pandemic, that's made a lot of sense to people because healthcare has been at the forefront of people's minds. And yet I look at I look at the public sector, I look at local councils, and I kind of think, well, it's my garden bin, or it's council tax, and it's less exciting, and it's less sexy, and it's less in the public eye, and it's I suppose it's less topical in a way that healthcare certainly has been over the last two years. How do you think some of these innovations can be adopted across maybe some of those slightly less interesting you know, local authority style, uh, sorry, local authority responsibilities that actually are really exciting. And it's just because they're idiots like me who don't get how it works, that it could produce some really interesting results for people. And this is the thing that is absolutely fascinating for me, because I love that side of local government. Um, I really enjoy the aspects that un- the unsexy side of local government, like the getting people where they need to go, making sure that the places that we live, work and play are meeting the needs of all of the residents and visitors of an area. So this idea of place and placemaking is something that really excites me. And it's actually one of the ones that's had the longest history in terms of data-driven innovation. Like there's been a long partnership between City of Edinburgh Council and the University of Edinburgh to establish something called the Edinburgh Living Lab, which is a space to experiment, to co-create together with communities in partnership with the council and universities to look at how we tackle problems or issues in communities together. And it's uncomfortable and it's messy and it's brilliant because you get these insights and ways of working within local government that you don't get to do every day. Like you get to really have these meaningful interactions with communities and understand how people want to want to experience the places that they live every day. That's one thing the pandemic's taught me. My community is actually a lot smaller than it used to be because it's now like the two miles from my house that I can walk. And my sense of place has changed. My interactions with my neighbours have changed. And having an understanding of where we can add value to those services is really important. So we've done a number of projects through the Edinburgh Living Lab that have really looked at this. Um, One was working with the council looking at um, property management and like asset management in Gracemount in South Edinburgh. And it was led by two colleagues, Kat McGill and Jenny Elliott, who went out and worked with the communities to understand how people wanted to interact with this particular sort of set of council services. Was there an opportunity to co-locate them? Like when people were popping out to the doctors, were they also popping to the post post office? Were people having kids in tow? Were there people with mobility issues that were more likely to be accessing certain services that would need to be considered? And so that kind of data, that kind of insight, like data is not just a spreadsheet. Like we all use data every day to make decisions about which way we want to walk to work or what we want to do for lunch. And those that data is just as valuable and absolutely fascinating to really dig into. And so it's not just a technology solution. And I think that's my biggest takeaway from a lot of these things for local government. Like there isn't, it's not the sexy robot that's going to fix how we take out the bins. It's going to be asking people, how do we improve this? What things really enhance your sense of place? And then 
it's the responsibility of local government to come up with the solutions that respond to that need because they own the delivery of that service. I would say a robot to take out my bins would be quite handy because it's seven o'clock on a Monday morning and I quite often forget. But I take your point. <laughs> I think if we're looking um, at the big scale of things that we could do, maybe bin <laughs> robots are not the most essential. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, right, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Very quickly, uh, if someone wants to find out more about the DDI, how would they do that? Uh, you can check our website, www.ddi.ac.uk and all of our contact information and details about what we're working on is on the website. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time, Gemma. You're welcome. Thank you very much.